0: Paul wrote a letter to them that he mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is about um, sexual immorality primarily. They didn't understand what he was getting at, or they did understand and they rejected it. In any case, it raised more questions than it um, produced answers. We don't have it in the Scriptures. I imagine that is um, um, uh, certainly by God's design. Uh, Perhaps, indeed, it was an inferior letter. It was not something that was breathed out by the Holy Spirit with that authority. Um, But 1 Corinthians is his response to their questions off of the back of that initial letter. They didn't receive it very well. So Paul made a visit to them, which he refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as a painful visit. And he talks about how um, uh, that, that visit did not go well, and he had to put some space between him and the church. And then he wrote a third letter, which he says he wrote with anguish and with tears. And they did receive that letter. Many of them repented. And there was an effort at reconciliation. And that's why Paul responds with Second Corinthians, which is basically him assuring that church, it's okay, I forgive you, because God has forgiven me in Christ, and He's forgiven you in Christ. We should be reconciled, and that's at one level, but then as the letter goes on, you see that there were still people in the church that did not like Paul, and it was a little more than just they didn't like Paul, and it's that sort of personal beef, but it it, it was really that they did not submit to Paul's apostolic teaching. That he was not a a, a man of good character. That he was not a man with spiritual qualifications. And so they, they rejected him. And by rejecting him, they called into question everything that he had preached in their midst. They called into question the personal counsel and discipleship he had done among them. called into question two letters that we have in the New Testament, which we affirm as Scripture breathed out by God and profitable even for us today. So he has to deal with that. He has to address that, even though it's quite unpleasant. And we might look at that and read that and we're like, oh, this up and down. And, you know, it, it, in, in these days of, um, quote unquote, cancel culture, and um, probably one of the most overused words uh, is toxic. Um, and, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, something or someone being toxic and I'm going to... To, you know, cancel that person or that place or that thing or I don't, I don't need their toxicity in my life and so I'm just going to burn bridges and I'm just going to walk off and do my own thing. Paul could have done that. But repeatedly through these letters, he, he, he speaks to them as babes in Christ. He speaks to them as brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians seems at, at first and hopefully less so after this morning's message but all over the place in some ways. And one minute he says he's boasting in them and he's rejoicing in them. And then the next minute he's, he's, he really seems like he's unloading a bit. Why would he even take the time? If they're, that, if they're causing him that stress, that, that pain. And it goes back to what we read to the beginning, Really course we could say it goes back to the work of the holy spirit in paul in saving him for himself but remember paul knew these people he worked with them he loved them he baptized some of them he's very uh, quick to say he did not baptize many of them in first corinthians isn't he It was like oh, I, I baptized none of you i did baptize this guy No, oh, that man that household a few others probably but um you know, he he had a relationship with them. And I'm sure that that made it very difficult, uh, even more painful, when there were uh, problems um, between him and them. That, that, that was sad. That, I know that weighed heavily on him. It must have done. But he endured, I, I, I would say, yeah, we could say because of them. His love, his affection, his investment. But cut I suggest to you tonight, he endured, he persevered in ministry to that church for the same reasons that we should persevere in ministry where God has us. Not because of people, not because of relationships, not because of friendships or how we feel or how we don't feel, because all of that can change. All of that can be temporal and emotions come and go and there's thoughts that are here and then they're gone and all sorts of stuff that can just change. But one thing doesn't change and that's the faithfulness of God. That's, that, that is God Himself at His very heart, His nature and His character. We endure, we persevere because of God and because His Word never fails. His Word never changes. It is... Um, uh, you know, in the same way that it said that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we know that the word of God changes not. Let's read from Acts 7, uh, sorry, Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila. A native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Just Paul's right there for a second. Paul, as he's making his way from Athens, where he's just engaged this very vaguely theistic sort of context, where people had... Uh, many gods and some had a vague idea of just one God and some had this this idea of an unknown God. So we'll put a statue up to him. And Paul, Paul addressed them and, and, and talked with them very gently, very humbly, but very helpfully about the unknown God. He's moved on from that place. He comes to Corinth. Corinth is one of the great cities of its age. Uh, I've not been watching much of the Olympics, uh, the Winter Olympics that are going on. In fact, somehow, it totally missed me that they were uh, about to happen until I saw a lot of people talking about the opening ceremony. And I was like, somehow I missed that. Used to, I would have, I would have been there locked in. But, you know, life and responsibility makes that sometimes a little more challenging. Um, but maybe, maybe, maybe you're watching the Olympics. The Corinthians hosted... The, or some of the original Olympic Games. They were called the Isthmian Games. Um, and uh, this was a massive sporting event that much of the Greek world would flock to. It was a place of great competition and um, a, a place where all sorts of um, impressive things were happening. But also it was a place where a lot of bad things were happening. There was wicked philosophies. I talked about some of that this morning. philosophies like the cynics and the Stoics, the sort of eat, drink, for tomorrow we die people, the uh, sort of, oh, I can be indifferent to suffering, be that my suffering or your suffering, because this life, this body, this this flesh prison doesn't matter. All of these, you know, different ideas. You have a man who um, was in Corinth, who um, um, basically spent his days totally naked, Um, His home was a bathtub of sorts uh, in the street, and um, um, he spent his time um, engaged in public acts of indecency, whether that um, um, meant of a sexual nature, of a toilet nature. He was known for that, and people flocked to him for his wisdom, which is fascinating. But that was the kind of place it was. He had apparently nice philosophical things to say, and so uh, all of this was sort of a gimmick to hook people to his teaching, and it was the outflow of his teaching, because none of this matters. And There was also idolatry. Beyond just that philosophical level, um, there were temples, particularly um, uh, places of worship to um, Aphrodite, um, the, the um, goddess of love and romance and fertility and lust and all of those type things. Uh, the temple was well stocked with prostitutes. And this is a problem Paul had to address later in his first letter to the Corinthians. There were even Christians that were still going there. And it was, an, you know, basically, it was an act of worship to Aphrodite to spend your time with prostitutes that had men and women prostitutes and that was some, that was something the city was well known for it was an immoral city it was an unjust city because there's this massive divide we even see it in first Corinthians between the the rich and the poor and the way the rich were treating the poor. Even in the church, it spilled over into the life of the church because certain aspects of their life and existence and culture hadn't really been sanctified out yet. So you have rich people that are showing up early and on time for the services and they're, they're feasting on the Lord's Supper, leaving nothing for the poor who are showing up later because of their work responsibilities because they were slaves. Immoral, unjust, idolatrous. And so as we, as we get into the, um, um, uh, the situation here in Corinth, Paul doubtless felt alone. He's new to this place. He's, he's just now um, um, getting to Corinth and he's confronted with all of this and there's much more that I've left out. So he needs fellowship, he needs friendship, he needs people to spend time with. So he seeks out a man named Aquila. Aquila is a Jewish believer in Jesus, his wife Priscilla. There's a sermon to be preached at another time about this great couple. Um, uh, In all probability, Priscilla was not a Jew, but a Gentile. And they had both been expelled from Rome because of Aquila's Jewish identity. But Priscilla would have been um, of a wealthy family, a noble family in the city of Rome. And she's often named first as a result when they're mentioned, Priscilla and Aquila instead of Aquila and Priscilla, after the custom of their time. They're tent makers. They have a trade. And Paul is going to get involved in this. Tent making um, went beyond actually making tents, but um, uh, leather work in general. And um, Corinth was a place actually of great industry for uh, this. They would make uh, these leather products that were then used by the Roman Empire. And it's quite astonishing, isn't it? They find themselves making tents. For the army that kicked them out of their home to begin with. Well, they're um, industrious people um, and they're working and they have to eat and have to provide for themselves. So they're, they're, they're busy with their work. Paul also needs to eat and support himself. He goes and he joins them in their work. He went to see them. He, he, um, we read verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade, notice this, Jews and Greeks. He goes to the synagogue. But even though he, as a Jew, is going to a place of Jewish worship and learning, his interaction is primarily and fundamentally not just targeting Jews, but he's engaging anyone he can with the good news of Jesus. Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia and they find Paul occupied with the Word. Those are the words that we read in verse 5. He's testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. The anointed one, the one that God had promised would would come and would be the ultimate prophet, priest, and king of his people. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one who will save his people from their sins. The prophets spoke about him. They opposed and reviled him. So he shakes his garments, as was their practice, and he says to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he he goes to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, verse 7. And this is quite funny, actually, to me at least. His house was next door to the synagogue. So one day Paul says, I'm done with you, Lot. I'm going to the Gentiles. He walks out, he turns, he walks into the house next door and, and sets up shop there. They must have been livid. Well, they were actually. It does get a bit out of hand as the chapter goes on. But as he continues to faithfully proclaim that the Christ was Jesus and that that He is worthy of our worship and our praise, get this, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. The very place that Paul had just left The very place that that he said, I'm done with you, I'm going only to the Gentiles now, I'm fed up with you lot. He goes next door, begins preaching Jesus, and the ruler of the synagogue, the teacher, the rabbi, the one who presided over things there, the one who handled the scrolls and all of that, the ruler of the synagogue becomes a follower of Jesus and his entire household. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And so you have this this church that's from its earliest days made up of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor. All sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of previous patterns in worship, whether it was the the more reverent and austere um, 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 uh, Jews... Or the Gentiles going off and worshiping their gods by having relations with prostitutes. There's quite a gap between the two. But they're now gathered in the house of this one man. um, And they're worshiping Jesus. Church is being planted and it's growing. They're baptized. And we're told in verse 9. And I want you to really focus on these words tonight. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are My people. I simply want to encourage you with four words things. First of all, you have reason to be afraid. Don't be. Notice I did not say you do not have reason to be afraid. I said you do have reason to be afraid. Don't be. There's a difference. There are some people who their approach to fear is You don't have reason to be afraid. So don't be. It's actually all okay. They bury their head in the sand. They adopt that stoic disposition of there's nothing wrong. There's no problem. I'm indifferent to suffering. But that's not what's happening here. You see, the Apostle Paul had reason to be afraid. We've already read that when he was preaching the Gospel in Corinth, already a scary enough place. This big city filled with immorality and injustice, built on the foundations of idolatry. Paul could have been afraid of that. Just everything that's growing out of that culture. But, when he begins to proclaim Jesus Christ, and begins to proclaim the good news of the Kingdom of God, they oppose and revile Him. Now th- this is going to be stronger. you have to understand this is stronger from that person who says i, I don 't really want to talk with you about that that 's hardly reviling you or that person who who you know they take a tract from you and they throw it on the way that 's not really opposing you okay or or someone someone um, you know, that you're, you're, you're trying to engage at your workplace. You know, you want to read the Bible with them or something. Maybe you get started on that. You read the Bible and they're like, yeah, uh, I, I'm not really enjoying this. I don't really like this. I don't like what Jesus has to say about sin. And I don't like what he has to say about that particular sin because I, I just don't, I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. I think it's prejudiced. I think it's, um, uh, you know, I, I don't like this. I'd rather not meet with you for... That's really not quite the same thing. Paul is aggressively opposed. And not only is he aggressively opposed, but he is aggressively opposed in the context of a system that is there to enable such opposition. Just at the local Jewish level, the way uh, the Jewish law was enforced within the synagogues and so forth... Paul is opposed and reviled to the point he has to leave. He's being gracious and kind and gentle and faithful and strong as he proclaims Jesus, but they do not believe that the Christ is Jesus. They violently oppose Him and revile Him. They seek to defame His character. They seek to defame His qualifications. They seek to defame His Christ. So he leaves. Later on, actually after the Lord came to him in that vision, we're told that the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So going beyond even the um, immediate system of the Jewish synagogue... They have taken him to the tribunal of the city of Corinth when Gallio is proconsul, and they have asked this Gentile proconsul to pass judgment on what Paul is doing. No, there are varying degrees to which people will in our city suffer for faithfully holding to biblical teachings. Faithful Christian doctrine and practice. I understand that. But let's not kid ourselves and and fall into some sort of victim mentality that we have it so bad. Very few of us really know what it is to be opposed for our faith. We might know what it is to be opposed for other things. There may even be some things that are sort of attached to our faith. Or we feel they are. We interpret mere disagreement sometimes as opposition. Rejection as reviling. But this campaign that Paul is subjected to is far more severe than what you and I are familiar with. We must be honest about that. And um, as, we, as we see what Paul is, is going through in this context on, on the left and the right opposition, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, all ages, all stages in life, all different backgrounds, involved in, to varying degrees in the city's idolatry, immorality, and injustice, God comes and speaks to him and says, Do not be afraid. Why would God say, do not be afraid? If he didn't know that Paul was afraid. Paul was afraid. You're like, I I think you're reaching a bit. I think you're just, that's conjecture, speculation. Well, actually, Paul says very similarly in uh, 1 Corinthians, when he wrote them sometime later in chapter 2 of that letter. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling." my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of god so he was afraid but god came to him and god spoke to him one night in corinth and said do not be afraid you could be afraid maybe at a human level you should be afraid don't be Why? Well, to start with, because God says, don't be. And when God says, don't be afraid, God, this God that we we read about at the beginning, who works wonders, and we sang about Him working wonders, and all of that. But sometimes, be honest, you find yourself in moments when you... Feel afraid, forgetting that He is the God of wonders. That you could be afraid, that you should be afraid, but He says don't be afraid. You have reason to be afraid, don't be. Secondly, you are speaking the truth. Go on speaking it. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be afraid. Silent. Now, I will be the first to tell someone to shut up if they need to. Be, if they need to. If someone is speaking nonsense and they're just running their mouth with all sorts of nonsense, after patiently letting them talk for a while, I will eventually, at some point, say enough. There are some times where I will. Have a, a, you know, a meeting. We'll sit down and we'll have a, a chat, and I'll go in with nothing of my words but with scripture. I remember a time I, I had just a list of scriptures to set the tone. And I began reading the scriptures, and I hadn't made it halfway through the first verse when I was interrupted. Can I continue? Finish the verse. The person turned it back on me. Let me read the second one. Read the second one. did it make it through the first couple of words before I got back at you. There are people who speak truth, but they weaponize it for their own ends. There are people who speak even Scripture but they use it they distort it they twist it to validate themselves and their own agendas how can you know well maybe look for Christ in it to start with what is where where is Christ in their motive where is Christ in their agenda where is Christ in their attitude and in their approach and in do you see what i'm saying the Apostle Paul, we can say he was speaking truth because it says very clearly, his message was not some sort of fringe preferential um, uh, perspective, but his, his message was simply and solely, as we read a moment ago, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And as he proclaimed in the synagogue to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when the brothers found the Apostle Paul there, um, they found him reasoning in the synagogue Trying to persuade them. And what was he trying to persuade them? He was trying to persuade them that Christ is Jesus. And Jesus is Christ. They found Him occupied with the Word. Occupied with proclaiming Christ. Occupied with explaining and expounding the Scriptures. And so when you see someone who's occupied with all sorts of other stuff. And they're just talking about a lot of other stuff. Some of it may be good. Some of it may be true. Some of it may be false. Some of it may be half true. Some of it may be quarter true. Some of it may be total lies. You have to ask, where is the Word in this? Where is Jesus? Where is the honor for the Word and for Jesus and for those who proclaim the Word and for Jesus and so on and so forth? But God, when He comes to Paul, A weak man like you and me. Okay? Afraid. As prone in himself and in his flesh to error as any one of us. God comes to the Apostle Paul and says, you are speaking the truth. Go on speaking it. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Go on speaking against the immorality of this city. In the name of Jesus. Go on speaking against the injustice of this city. Because there is a higher throne. By which the thrones of this world are judged. Go on speaking against the idolatry of this city. For it is in the soil of idolatry. That immorality and injustice prosper. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Every now and then, you, my brothers and sisters, need to hear the words of the Lord again to you. If indeed you are speaking the truth, go on speaking and do not be silent. You perhaps are keenly aware of your own weaknesses. You perhaps are keenly aware of your own temptations, your own sins, your failures, and your, your 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 frailty and foolishness. Go on speaking and do not be silent. So far as what you are speaking is the glorious good news that Jesus is the Christ. Because when you're speaking that Jesus is the Christ, you are simultaneously confessing, I'm a sinner. He is my Savior. Look to him. And then this third encouragement. You may feel that you are alone. You are not. You may feel that you are alone. You are not. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. All throughout Scripture, whenever God's people are feeling a special kind of weak, how does God encourage them? Often he tells them things like, Fear not. It's all throughout Scripture repeatedly. Quite possibly one of the most often commanded things that we read. I dare say it's the most repeated command in Scripture. Fear not. Do not be afraid. But you know, oftentimes we we still are afraid, aren't we? And we wonder, How can I endure? How can I persevere? How can I get through these trials and these difficulties and all of this this struggle? How? And again and again we see throughout scripture the words, I will be with you. Or I am with you. And here we see it again. You know, you can you can have friends and still feel alone. You can be actively involved in a healthy local church, seeing people come to repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, baptizing them, or in Paul's case, I suppose, asking someone else to do the job for you, and still feel alone. Why do you think Paul heard the voice of the Lord that night saying, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. If he didn't. If there was not something within him that in those moments wondered if all of this was just going to fall to pieces. If perhaps it was just going to implode. The whole project was ultimately going to be a disaster. I am with you. Imagine... Paul going out of his accommodations. Maybe he's on his way to the, the studio where they're making their, their tents or leather works or whatever. And he's, he's in the street. And he sees these people spouting their philosophy. And all these people that seem to be engaging them and listening to them, seem to be flocking to them, liking their stuff, talking with them. Soaking it all in. Sharing their message. And here he is just on his own. Going about his day. Does anyone on this street believe in Jesus? In this moment, in the airspace that I am sharing with however many hundreds of people on this road, am I the only person Breathing. Who is also breathing praises to Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel that way? Walking on Wood Green High Road, for example, at any given moment, wondering, am I the only person who knows God personally and who has right relationship with Him in Jesus Christ? Who's like standing on this pathway? Is there anyone else? And signs of idolatry all around us. Immorality. If you have the displeasure as I did to walk through um, this alleyway here. um, Earlier in the week. And uh, see a, a homeless man having sex in one of the alcoves. Deeply distressing. You know it's like there's man and his children walking by. Civil enforcement officers walk up. Your job is more than your job is more than ticketing cars. Can you please sort this out? They just look. They walk on. I'm sorry. Are you, are you not going to do anything about this? This is an act of public indecency. Are you going to call the police? Are you going to? I. I you know. You're. It's your job. You're here. You see it. They look down the end and they see a man parking illegally and they start running in that direction. What immorality. I mean, I just chose something very flagrant that, that colored my um, perception of things this week. But the stuff that goes on behind closed doors, the stuff that people get up to, the stuff they consume, the stuff they think, once you get back... Once, once you get... All of that could be just... No more, right? Still people are immoral in their hearts and their minds. Injustice. As some people are made poor, kept poor. They try and they fail to advance. They look hard for opportunities and they just can't seem to and there are people who do. And they do struggle. And there are some in our congregation who have really struggled. And it's not for, for want of trying. And at the end of the day, you have to ask questions about whether they were ever meant to succeed in this city. Meanwhile, we pray for countries like we did um, uh, this morning and last night that are um, completely surrounded by Like the fifth largest army in the world. And the country isn't a little country, but the country that's surrounding them is much bigger and much stronger. When we look at this and we see our brothers and our sisters crying out, wondering what's going to happen. Crying out for help. Crying out to God. Do something. Turn this evil away. And we wonder... You know, am I the only one who cares about idolatry, immorality, and injustice? God says no. You're not alone. And He begins by saying, I am with you, but He does also later say, I have many that are your people, which is another point altogether, but to know that God is with us and to know that He has people who are with us. And if Paul would just just take a breather for a minute and look around him and see wait a second, there's this man who's letting you worship in his house. Titius justice. And there's this man who was a ruler of the synagogue who didn't want you there at the beginning, but who's now come to faith in Jesus with his whole household and he's joining you in worship. And there's others from the Corinthians who are being baptized as they believe in Jesus Christ. You're not alone. And it's Yes, it's great comfort to know that there are other brothers and sisters and that we're in a family and we're in in one body together. But it's an even greater comfort to know that the Lord God of hosts is with us. Whatever happens. I am with you. And, and, And then He says, no one will attack you to harm you. Back to that first point. You have reason to be afraid. There are people that will or could or would want to harm you, but because I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you. Those people exist. Their emotions exist. Their anger and hatred exist. But they will not prosper against you. Why? Because you're not alone. Even if you feel like it. Do remember that. I know that there are many brothers and sisters who sometimes struggle with with seasons of despair, seasons of darkness, of discouragement, you are not alone. God is with you. And we are with you as your brothers and sisters. And finally, you may think God's people are few. They are many. You know, sometimes um, uh, uh, there's this... there's. This attitude that people have and they actually, it you know, doesn't seem like it's a great thing, but they, they hold to it of sort of the sort of we are the few, you know, we are the, the chosen and the way is narrow and they emphasize all, all of the things in the Bible that emphasize um, smallness to the point that it's almost like they raise barriers to keep things unnecessarily small. Are you following me? You know, we were talking this morning a bit. We'll get there later in 2 Corinthians. Um, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about widening their hearts. And I know um, our world talks about being narrow-minded and they would still see things that we believe from Scripture, however kind we are, however generous we are, they would say you're very narrow-minded if we start talking about Jesus is the only way, for example. There is no name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved, but Jesus. You know, that, that could be called narrow-minded, but Lay that aside. Let's talk about being wide-hearted because Paul says, widen your hearts. That is, have generous hearts. Charitable hearts. Hearts that are open and filled with, with, with love for God's people. And not just those who are God's people now, identifiably so, but that those who could be. So I have to widen my heart. To know that the person who leaves drug paraphernalia outside the flat door could become my brother or sister in Christ. I have to widen my heart when I um, I walk through the alley and see what I can never unsee. To know that one day the person committing public indecency and immorality and a whole host of other things that just were distressing that person could have the Holy Spirit of God get a grip on their life and change them and save them. I have to widen my heart that that person could walk through and before they're saved, could start attending. I have to widen my heart that the um, scores of alcoholics that I interact with throughout the week will find... Not only sobriety, but salvation in Jesus Christ. And that the struggle and the conversations and the, the foundation laying and the, the, the relational interactions and the, the gospel proclamation will bear fruit sometime in someone. Widen your hearts also you may think God's people are few. And sometimes I wonder if we would rather it that way. It's easier, is it not? A few weeks ago, when um, we had the family testifying of their salvation and going into the waters of baptism, a week before that, in fact, I warned the church of satanic attacks. Did I not? I said, and it's not the first time I've said that sort of thing, but I really felt prompted to say that and it has happened really little things in some ways and then some less than little things that uh, um, just unpleasantness sowing seeds of division and hatred and resent and backbiting and turmoil and opposition and disagree it just what's going on well we're not we're not We're not blind to Satan's devices. As we grow, as God continues to bless, we're we're waving a red flag to a bull. And yet, you know, it's worth it. Just take a step back. It's worth it. Growing pains. Some teething issues. Once, once you were like one of the little ones here, squaloring, crying or something, it's unpleasant. The teeth are just breaking through. But once your teeth grew in, you were able to eat proper food, proper solids, Maturing. You hit an awkward stage in your life probably various things started aching, you weren't entirely happy, but you can explain you know, what you saw in the mirror, and it's just that you start aching, and there were some pains, and there was just new things that you were having to learn and deal with. Growth. Development. But once you got through that, you're an adult. You're mature. You're thinking differently. You're acting differently. So it is in church life. We can't stay children forever. And we have to get past thinking that being few is necessarily a great thing. And we also have to get over the thought that being few is necessarily a bad thing. The text doesn't address that. What it does address is God's plan. I have many in this city you are my people. You may think God's people are few, but they are many. We've seen that time and again in the life of our church. On a quiet Sunday night in February like this, it might not seem like... what, what, What could happen here? Well, what is happening here? The worship of God. The proclamation of eternal truth. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. The communion of believers. Union with one another and with God spiritually in Jesus Christ. The outworking of our reconciliation. God continuing His work of salvation in us as He sanctifies us by the Holy Spirit. God calling sinners to repentance. Wonderful things. Glorious things. People walking by wondering, what is this? People still believe that? And who knows what they may look up, what they may read. Who knows when they may walk in. As we leave, the things that we say and how we say them and what we do and when we do them and how we do them and all of that are a testimony. We go out as lights into a dark world. And we can do so. Because God has said... I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I have many people in this city. So that's how Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth got started. He ended up staying well over a year in Corinth. And then he had the little episode with the tribunal. And that backfired spectacularly. Paul was released and... Um, uh, you, you see everyone beating up on this man named Sosthenes, who is another man in the, uh, in the, the synagogue. Gallio, doesn't care. And Paul's able to just carry on his ministry. And it says he stayed with them a great while. And whatever God has for us, whatever God has in store for us, we can stay where He has us for a great while, knowing that He's with us. Knowing that His people are um, uh, coming to him through our witness and our testimony let's let 's pray, Father, we ask that in your mercy and grace that you would help us sometimes we 're weak, so always really we 're weak, and we're, we, we can sometimes be discouraged. Father, I pray that we would not despair. I pray that we would in in fact this evening here Your voice to us tonight. Do not be afraid. For I am with you. And no one who is your enemy will hurt you. Keep speaking. Do not be silent. I have many who are in this city. Lord, may we hear that tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen.